pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, we're going to read verses 4 through 9, I'll be reading in the King James, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, and they, the children of Israel, under the leadership of Moses and the guidance of God and the Holy Ghost, journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, or because of the journey. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes, or hates, or defies this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people of Israel came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Hallelujah. I want to continue talking to you this morning about the cross. I know I started a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, and of course we had Resurrection Sunday, and I want to look further. We looked at some types and shadows, and I want to look further into those types and shadows, and I call them pictures of redemption, because as we see them, we see a picture of the New Testament redemption that Christ purchased for us on Calvary. And you know, uh, Paul said all these things that were done in the Old Testament to the children of Israel are for our admonition and for our examples. So we should be looking in the Old Testament to see some of the things that would be an example for us here in the New Testament. We might learn some things. Amen? And in our opening scripture, we find the children of Israel complaining about God and Moses. And it seems like every time things didn't go their way, they would get discouraged, depressed, and they start whining and complaining. You know anyone like that? I don't. Here the Bible says the children of Israel were much discouraged. Not just discouraged, but much discouraged. And the first thing they did was start whining and complaining. And as far as I can tell, every time they opened their mouths to whine and complain throughout the Old Testament, if you looked at the Old Testament and their journeyings in the wilderness and the taking of the promised land and everything, and even in the promised land, 
they did a lot of whining and complaining. Now, I ain't going to get too hard on them because I've done some whining and complaining in my days, too. But every time they did, they'd get in trouble. You'd think that after a little while, they'd learn. Amen? And, and I, I'm looking back at Israel and, and picturing them in Egypt in slavery, and then Moses comes along and he tells them that God sent him to set them free and get them out of Egypt. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, set my people free. And then Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses, through the hand of God, begins doing these miraculous things, turning water into blood and bringing on these plagues and all of this stuff. And Israel got to see all of this. And then they leave Egypt and they're all completely healed and whole. And not only that, but Egypt gave them all their gold and silver and they're leaving there rich and healed and healthy. And, and, and don't forget, they were slaves for over 400 years. They had a lot of broken bones and things and God healed them all. And there wasn't no time at all and they're complaining and whining. You bring us out here in the wilderness to die, what to God we would have stayed in Egypt. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? I don't want to go back from where I came from. But anyway, I won't be too hard on them because I wasn't in their shoes. But it also seems that when some of us as God's children are discouraged, the first thing we want to do is complain about God. You know, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did I have, why did I get this disease? Why did I lose my job? Why don't Junior do his homework? Why does everything happen to me? And we start whining and complaining. And we complain as though we had nothing to do with the mess or the circumstances that we're in. And yet we had everything to do with them. Because we make the choices that get us, like Pastor Ed was saying, we make the choices that get us into the position that we're in. And it seems like every time things didn't work out right for the Israelites, they would get upset and discouraged and depressed. And they would direct that uh, anger and malice towards God or towards Moses. You know, we all got to have somebody take things out on. I mean... Israel had to have a scapegoat, a whipping boy. You remember that from last week? And they did this quite a bit in the wilderness. They came against the very two people who had delivered them from the slavery of Pharaoh and the bondage of Egypt. You know how it goes. You go from hero to zero and nothing flat. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt so that we could die here in the wilderness? And were they going through it? Absolutely. They were going through some things. I'm sure they had their share of problems, just like we do and everybody else. But did they have the right to whine and complain against God and his leadership? Absolutely not. Like Pastor Ed was saying this morning, keep your mouth shut. Why? Because the Israelites were being well taken care of in the wilderness. Yeah, they was in the wilderness. They were in the desert. But they were being well taken care of. One miracle after another. And, and, and when God freed them from Egypt and they went out into the wilderness, he made ways for them that you couldn't even dream of. And you know, the Bible says that he'll make it a way where there seems to be no way. I mean, he brought, he parted the Red Sea, brought them across on dry ground. 
crossed the Red Sea. And a little while later, they're complaining. So they were well provided for. They had a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm, a cloud by day to keep them cool, and there was protection under that cloud. That cloud was so miraculous that there was no friction under that cloud. So their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, nothing wore out. I mean, it was like they were wearing new clothes and new shoes every single day. Miracle after miracle. And they lied about not having food and water because at the very time that they said that and were whining and complaining, they were getting fresh manna from heaven every morning and fresh water from a rock. Fresh water from a rock every day. So here, when they complain in their opening scripture, we're going to die out here because we don't have any bread or water, no food or drink. They were lying. They had it. The truth of the matter is that they just didn't like it. They didn't like the manna from heaven. They didn't like the bread that came from heaven every morning. It said that they loathed that light bread. I guess they wanted rye or pumpernickel or something. I don't know. But they didn't like that white bread, that light, that light bread. And the manna, the manna was actually a type and shadow of the true bread that would come down from heaven one day in the future. Jesus Christ. And the rock that the water came forth from was Jesus Christ. Not a type of Jesus Christ. Not a shadow of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it was Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, it says this. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant or unlearned, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So he's talking about the children of Israel, the ones that we were reading about here in our opening scripture. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Didn't say like Christ. Didn't say a type of Christ. It was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. Well, if, God's, if God is not well pleased, then that means that somebody's not walking in faith. Because... Uh, the only thing that pleases God is faith. Faith is, God is pleased by faith. So somebody's not walking in faith here for God to be displeased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So there's a lesson here for us to learn. We shouldn't be lusting after evil things. So there's no doubt that the rock is Christ, but in type, here's where the type and shadow comes in. In type, it also represented the cross because Israel had two encounters with this rock in the wilderness. The first encounter was when they were complaining because they were thirsty. And God led Moses to the rock and instructed Moses exactly what to do to bring water forth from that rock. In Exodus 17, 6, God told Moses, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. God's standing on this rock now. 
And thou shalt smite the rock with his staff, with his stick, the same staff that he used to perform the miracles in Egypt, that same rock. He said, thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and the smiting of that rock was a type of the crucifixion. And then we read in Numbers 20 and 8, which we just read a minute ago, that the children of Israel were complaining again that they were thirsty and their cattle were dying of thirst. So God told Moses to gather them around the rock again. Sometimes we just don't learn things the first time around, right? But this time he told Moses to just speak to the rock. Speak to the rock in front of the people and it shall give forth and now God uses a pronoun concerning the rock he says and it shall give forth his water who was that rock again? that rock was Christ and that it will be more than enough for them and their cattle he's, he's showing them El Shaddai right now the God that's more than enough but Moses took his rod because he's He's miffed with the people. He's mad at the people. He's angry. And so he takes his rod, and even though God told him to only speak to the rock, he smites it again because he was looking to sanctify himself in the eyes of the people when he should have been looking to sanctify God in the sight of the people. So in other words, he got into pride. And he says, must I draw water from this rock again? Like he had anything to do with it. He was just an instrument God used. And instead of speaking to the rock, he smacks it. Not once, but he smacks it twice. And it was actually an act of unbelief, I learned by reading further, because when the Lord rebuked him for his disobedience, he said, because you believe me not. Because you didn't sanctify me in the eyes of the people. You will not be able to take them into the promised land. Man, that was a hard blow for Moses. Here Moses went through all of those miracles and all that uh, whining and complaining and groaning and the Ten Commandments in the mountain and the golden calf and all the rebellion and all the diseases and all the intercession. And, and Moses now is saying, you mean I'm not going to be able to take them in? That's right because of your unbelief and because you failed to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. We gotta be careful when we messing around with God's glory, messing around with things that belong to God that are earmarked for God, leave them things alone. I mean, it seemed kind of hard on Moses, but not when you consider who that rock was and what smiting the rock with his rod represented. The rock had already been struck once, the first time, which was a, a type of Christ's crucifixion, something that was only to happen one time for all men, for all sin, for all time. One time you crucified the Lord. So Moses, by striking that rock again, crucified the Lord anew, not once but twice more. So just speaking to the rock now would have brought the same benefits and results 
that it did the first time when he struck it with the rod. It would bring forth life-giving water. Just speaking to it would brought forth the life-giving water. And the same is true now of Christ. That's why it was a type of the crucifixion. Because when we come to the cross for salvation and we look on Christ, we have to do, uh, all we have to do is what God told Moses to do. Just speak to it. Ask and you'll receive. Yes. We can't crucify Christ new. There's only one sacrifice for sin. And, and there's people going around in this world that think they can't be forgiven for something that they did. And one example of it was uh, this one guy actually wanted somebody to witness to his children. He said, it's too late for me, but it's not too late for them. Well, why is it too late for you? Because of the things I did can't be forgiven. Now, so what do we got to do? Crucify Christ again? Smack the rock again because you don't think you can be forgiven? One time for all people, for all time. So he has some bad teaching, obviously. But anyway, back to the situation Israel finds themselves in. <laughs> See, when you're believing for God, believing God for something, and no matter how long it takes, you can't allow discouragement to get in your mouth. Like Daryl said, is it good morning, Lord, or is it Lord, it's morning? No, get up every day and say, good morning, Lord. Yeah. This is the day you made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah. I'm going to take advantage of your goodness and your mercy and your Hallelujah. grace. Yeah. I'm going to take advantage of your favor today, and I'm going to cause good things to happen to me and my family yeah. because of you. So you can't let discouragement and your mouth get you in trouble. Keep your mouth from complaining, especially about God and the leadership that he chooses. Whether it's a pastor, an evangelist, a, a teacher of some kind, a usher, uh, a children's worker, it doesn't make any difference. If they're God's chosen leader, keep your mouth off of them. God don't like that when you complain about the leaders that he chose. And don't forget, he's already provided everything we need. And if we'll just remember that, then instead of whining and complaining, we'll be too busy praising him. When we recognize all the goodness that he's done for us and the things he's done for us, we'll be too busy praising him to find time for complaining. So anyway, the Lord finally had enough of their complaining and their whining. And in verse 6, it says, he sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, they weren't fiery in the literal sense. That was a description of their color. They were like a brass-colored serpent, a brass-colored snake. I don't know uh, what they call them nowadays, but they're, uh, they're very deadly, very poisonous. These copperheads or something like that, they're very poisonous. So something like that, a copperhead, something of a fiery color. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and they started dying by the thousands. So after the Israelites complained against Moses and God, and an army of brass-colored serpents crawls into the camp and begins biting them. And one translation says that the Lord let loose 
fiery serpents. I don't know why it said that, but the same Hebrew word that was used for scent was also translated as let loose. So this is the Lord's doing. There's no doubt about it. But remember, the Israelites are in the wilderness, a place that's full of snakes to begin with. So the miracle wasn't the fact that the snakes started biting them. The miracle was that three thousand or three million people, three plus million people, or three million plus people, were wandering around in the wilderness for I don't know how long before this occasion, and not one of them ever got bit by any kind of snake. So that's the miracle. God supernaturally protected his people, and he kept the snakes out. How'd you like to keep the snakes out of your life? Have you ever heard this, the saying, snake bit? I'm just snake bit. I heard it the other day. I heard it yesterday. I was talking to somebody on the phone. They were, uh, they had a streak of bad luck, and he says, uh, he said, I'm just snake bit. I said, stop talking like that. That's your first mistake. You're not snake bit. And, and snake bit to, to him and, and what the colloquial means is that uh, they had a, a run of bad luck, so they call themselves snake bit. No, you're not snake bit. But anyway, when they broke their covenant through rebellion, unbelief, and their complaining, God withdrew his hand of protection, and that's when he let loose the snakes. He just didn't protect them anymore from the snakes. And they come into the camp, and they're biting the people, and they're dying by the thousands. So they got in trouble spiritually with their big mouth. That's usually what happens first. You get in trouble spiritually. Sometimes you get instant trouble when you open your mouth to the wrong person and he punches you in the face. That's pretty instant, you know, but that's a physical consequence. It started out spiritually because they doubted God's ability to provide for them after all he's done. And they start complaining. So the serpents were able to come into the camp because they opened the door to them. That's why I say a lot of times we complain to God and we complain about the leadership. You know, uh, my children are acting crazy. I don't know what they're teaching them in that children's church back there or or in the youth group. I don't know what they're teaching. They're acting crazy. What about the 160-something hours that you have them all week? You're going to blame the leadership of the church for one hour that we have them? That's what I'm talking about here. It's it's crazy to complain about God. But then when the servants came in, they're not only in spiritual trouble, but now they're in physical trouble as well. Verse 7 says, therefore, Brother Hagin used to say, every time you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Therefore, the people Oh, that floor is getting further and further away. (laughs) Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Good old Moses. But isn't it amazing how quickly the people got the revelation that they had sinned? 
And one minute they're whining and complaining about Moses, and the next minute they're asking him to intercede for them in prayer. So Moses could have refused to pray and said, no, no, I'm not praying for you. You've got exactly what you deserve. Karma, baby. Sowing and reaping. Now, I have to be honest with you. I've entertained that thought at times in my ministry over the years. Not too much lately. But I have. I ain't going to lie to you. I have. Somebody come to me for prayer and I know why they were in the mess they were in. And I wanted to say, no, I ain't praying for you. You deserve what you got because that's what your big mouth has been talking about for the last three months. But I did and I did like Mo and I walked in love. And I prayed for him. Not too much faith at first. <laughs> but sometimes you have to start things out in the flesh. And then you'll get in the spirit. You pray for him long enough. And you know, your heart will change towards him. But anyway, Moses, Moses did the same thing. He walked in love and prayed for the whiners. And God not only provided a way for them to be forgiven but a way for the ones who were bitten to be healed. Now, the ones that died, there's no mention of what happened to them. But if you wasn't dead yet and you followed his instructions, he forgave you and then he healed you. So verse 8 and 9 shows us God's solution to this problem. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Keep that word looketh in mind. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man or woman or child or whoever, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So that brass serpent is a type and shadow of Christ on the cross. There's no doubt about it. And people have a hard time with Christ being represented by a serpent. Not like Jesus. You can't make him a serpent. Let's make him a little white lamb out of marshmallows and put that on the pole. No. He, it had to be a serpent because that's who Jesus was representing on the cross. It's Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. He's redeeming us from the curse because ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the serpent has been a, uh, an image of the curse. Or the curse was an image of the serpent. He's the one who caused the curse. So he represents the curse. And so that's why they had to put a serpent on that pole to represent the curse that Jesus became for us. And I'm telling you, that's a popular serpent because if you look on the side of an ambulance or on their patch on their arm, what do they have? A serpent on a pole. And what does it represent? Healing. They're healers. So that serpent represents the curse because that's exactly what Jesus became for us when he hung on that cross. And brass throughout the Old Testament always represented judgment. If you look at the old tabernacle, when you first come into the courtyard of the Gentiles, the first thing you stand before is a big brazen or brass 
altar where the sacrifices are made. Why? Judgment fell on that sacrifice. And then if you go a little bit further, there's a, a laver full of water, a brass laver full of water. And, and it's for the cleansing of the priests as they minister around in the tabernacle. They get dirty out in the courtyard, out ministering in the world. And so they have to do a ceremonial washing before they go in. And it was a highly polished brass because when they looked in the water, they could see their reflection. And it was a picture of the word. James called the word a mirror. Why? Because you can look in the natural mirror and see what's on your physical self and correct some things and, and straighten out an eyebrow and pick spinach out of your teeth and, and, and lick that collet down and all of that. But you need to get into the word to see the real you and what he looks like. So that's what that labor represented. But brass always represents judgment. And Jesus had never sinned in his life. He didn't deserve to be judged. But when he hung on the cross, he became a curse for us. And that's why he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wasn't delirious. He knew exactly what he was saying. God turned his back on his own son at that very moment because God couldn't lift Look upon the sin and the curse and the serpent that he became for us. The curse is represented by sickness, poverty, and spiritual death. All those things were nailed to the cross with Jesus in the form of his body. Judgment fell on him instead of us. So when Moses held up that serpent, he's showing the people a picture of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and becoming the atonement for their sins somewhere in the future. We're looking at it in the past. They're looking for it in the future. Galatians 3.13 tells us plainly, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree or hangeth on the cross. There's no doubt he became that curse, and that's why he was represented by the serpent in the wilderness. He became everything that curse represented. And God told Moses to put that brass serpent on a pole. And he said, whoever will look, remember that word looking? Whoever will look at the serpent will live. So Israel didn't realize it at the time, but they were looking at a picture of their own redemption in the future. A picture of their atonement and our atonement. And when the children of Israel were looking at that serpent on the pole, uh, they're looking ahead to what Jesus Christ is going to do for them. It was a perfect type of Jesus on the cross. Yes. And when they looked on that serpent in the wilderness, they were not only forgiven for their sin, but they were also healed and delivered as well. See, God didn't turn anyone away. He said, everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And in the same way, every one of us can look back in faith at what Jesus did for us in the atonement and receive forgiveness, healing, and deliverance for ourselves. Just by asking. God didn't turn anyone down in the Old Testament. He's not going to turn anyone down in the New and Better Testament or Covenant. So the Israelites were instructed by God through their leader Moses to look upon the serpent of brass for their forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. But the Hebrew word used here 
for the word look wasn't talking about a casual glance. Let me read it in verse 9 in the Amplified Bible. They bring it out beautifully. In Numbers 21.9 in the Amplified, it identifies what kind of look God was talking about. It says, And Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and if a serpent had bitten any man, when he looked to the serpent of bronze, how attentively, expectantly, with a steady and absorbing gaze. That's what that word look means. That's not a glance. That means you fix yourself on that serpent, and you don't look anywhere else. Snakes biting your ankles and your legs and uh, chaos all around you. But what do you do? you got to stay focused on that serpent if you want to live. You have to take your eyes off of your circumstances and focus on Jesus. So when they're bitten by snakes in the wilderness, they had to do something in order to be healed. But just because the brass serpent was placed on the pole, it didn't mean that everybody was automatically healed. The provision was made, but you had to look upon it. And you had to gaze attentively. You had to absorb it. You had to focus on it. If you took your eyes off of it, dead. Think you can keep your eyes on it? How about if a snake's biting your ankle? Pastor Red touched on it this morning, but I learned something extraordinary in my studies this week, and I'm so excited about it. I got so excited about it. I, I, I wanted to preach about it this week, but I didn't get the release. I had a check in my spirit, and God said, continue with this message, and I did. But I'm telling you, it's cooking in there. And, and, you know, I don't have time to get into it today, but I will at least tell you what it is. And maybe next week, the Lord willing, we'll get into it further. But you got your pencils ready? Get your pencils ready. You're going to want to write this down. I noticed that when the Lord does anything extraordinary, miraculous, or supernaturally for anyone, he always requires them to take a step of faith. Look at all the healings. Look at the, all the miracles in the Bible. And you'll see every time. Now I'm not going to get dogmatic about it because I haven't had enough time to really study it out. But the examples I looked at and looked up every time God required something of them. Just like here. This is a perfect example. If they didn't look at the provision God made. They would have died in the wilderness right then from the snake bites. That was their step of faith. Yes. God says, when you take your step of faith and you do what I told you to, then you'll see your miracle. Mm -hmm. You'll live. I mean, for Jesus to put mud on a blind man's eyes and then tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, that's a big step of faith for that guy. He's blind. How am I going to find the pool of Siloam? But I'll tell you what. He just started running. He found it. 
We have to take a step of faith, and God meets us there. You don't take the step, you don't get what you've got coming. You don't get the miracle. Steps of faith, steps of faith. Paul talks about walking in the steps of faith. I'm beginning to see what he's talking about. But anyway, Lord willing, I'll share some more of that next week. But, but like I said, this is a good example of what I'm talking about. Everyone that's bitten, when he looks, what happened if you didn't look? You would have died. Why? You didn't take your step of faith. You didn't do your part. God, heal me. I don't want to meddle. I really don't. But I have to. Heal me of this sugar diabetes while you're stuffing your face with cheesecake. God say, take a step of faith. Put the cheesecake down and I'll heal you. You know how many people won't put that cheesecake down? You know how many people that have to live with sugar diabetes because of it? I'm telling you, God will give you something to do. And if you'll do it, he'll do what he promised he would do. And heal you. Paul says, have you done all the stand? Then you stand. But we want to stand and wait for God to do something before we've done all that we could do. Here's another little nugget. And again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it because I didn't study it all the way out. But God will never do anything for you that you could do for yourself. God is the God of the impossible. If it's possible, then you do it. But when you reach that place where I can't do no more. It's impossible from here. God will hear your prayer then. Just saying. Just saying. Just putting a serpent on the pole or just having the provision there doesn't fix all the problems by itself. Just hanging Jesus on the cross and him dying on the cross wasn't the miracle. A lot of people died on the cross. That was a big thing for the Romans back in that day. Just him hanging on the cross didn't bring healing and forgiveness to you. Until what? Until you asked. That was your step of faith. You had to ask. You had to look upon that cross and look upon Jesus attentively, expectantly, with a steady and absorbing gaze. You had to take him in. You had to focus on him. Then forgiveness, forgiveness, healing, and deliverance came. When you did your part, God did his part. God didn't say, all right, take a quick glance and head to the house. I did it all for you. No, he didn't say that. He said you had to look attentively, expectantly, with a steady and absorbing gaze. And you had to keep your focus until you were healed and the snakes left you. The serpent on the pole, Jesus on the cross, that's just the provision for your forgiveness, healing, and your deliverance. God was telling the Israelites, you can't look at the snakes and the serpent on the pole at the same time. You couldn't do it. You had to choose which one you were going to look at. You had to choose which one was better for you, your circumstances 
in your way of doing things or God's provision in his way of doing things? Simple choice, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I don't even have to think about that one, right? I'm going to look at the pole till I'm healed, till the snakes are gone. I think I could have concentrated on that pole long enough. So in other words, what do we need to learn from this? You can't look at the problem and the circumstances and the solution at the same time. Make up your mind. Is God bigger than your circumstances and your solution or not? That's your step of faith. That's your part to play. You have to choose whether you're going to gaze at the problem or gaze at the solution. But if you want to live, you have to look at God's answer. His answer is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's basically what I've been preaching for the last three weeks. I can't go wrong preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have to look attentively, expectantly, with a steady and absorbing gaze because God wants us to realize the value of Christ and what he did for us on that cross. You don't get that from a casual glance. You get that from focusing on him, focusing on the word, focusing on God, focusing on prayer, shutting everything out around you, shutting out all the snakes and all the, the hazards of life and focusing on your provision. You don't get that from a glance. He's, much, he's worth much more than a casual glance. But the people looked at that serpent on the pole, and the people looked to Christ and the cross, and we both received forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. Salvation. We receive salvation. And we receive eternal life. They only lived again but later had to die. But let me show you something else I learned. How many can quote John 3.16? I think everybody in here can probably quote John 3.16. I mean, I, I bet our children even know how to quote John 3.16. That's one of the first scriptures we teach them back there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sporting events. I mean, our children can quote it. So it's really popular, but do you know it's almost always quoted out of context? And that's okay because it can't stand alone. It can stand on itself and still be effective. John 3.16 is always effective. But we take it out of context. But this morning, we're going to read it in the context that it was written. Uh, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee that came to him by night by the name of Nicodemus. It's in John chapter 3. And you know the story. Jesus told old Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he shall in no wise see the kingdom of God. And that didn't make sense to Nicodemus. So he asked Jesus, How in the world can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him and said, Except a man be born of water, which is natural birth, and of the spirit, which is being born again, the rebirth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. First of all, you have to be born into this world. And the reason he said that specifically is because if, 
Jesus talked about the gate to the sheepfold. He said, I'm the door, I'm the gate. Any man that enters in any other way, the same as a thief and a robber, he'll get thrown out. How was Satan born into this world? He wasn't. He's a thief and a robber. And when the time comes, he's going to be cast out. But we have a place there because we were number one, born into this world. So we're here legally. We come through the water, through the mother's womb. And then he says that you also have to be born again of the spirit. If not, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So I can be born into this world and experience natural birth. But if I'm not born again, I don't go to heaven. There's only two places you can go, heaven or hell. And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is really puzzled now. And so he says, how can these things be? And Jesus is like, come on, man. You're supposed to be an authority of the Bible, a master teacher of the children of Israel. And you don't know any of these things? And keep in mind now, Nicodemus asked Jesus a question. How can a man be born again? And now Jesus is going to tell him how. Got your pencils? Here's the answer to Nicodemus' question on how can a man be born again and the context in which we should interpret John 3.16. Verse 14. And as Moses, this is Jesus talking, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And just as the serpent was fastened to that pole and lifted up in the wilderness for all to behold, for their healing, deliverance, and salvation, Jesus was fastened to that cross and lifted up on Calvary for all to behold. And then he says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He didn't change topics. He's still talking about it. How a man should be born again. And it ties in with the serpent on the pole. And Jesus being, being coming that serpent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because you were instructed to look upon the pole, to look upon the cross, and you refuse to look. You're condemned. There's no other way out. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you don't behold that cross and Christ hanging upon it, if you don't stare attentively with a, 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 a fixed gaze on it, if you don't focus on it, you'll not be delivered, you'll not receive salvation, and you won't be healed. So I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to try to. <clears throat> 
The children in the wilderness looked to that serpent on the pole to receive forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. Also life. Because when they looked on it, they lived. Today, as we fix our eyes on Jesus and look upon him attentively, expectantly, with a steady absorbing gaze, we receive the same thing with one exception. We receive forgiveness, healing, deliverance, and life, but we receive eternal life. Eternal life. What's our step of faith? Remember I said every, every promise requires a step of faith on your part. And our step of faith is to acknowledge and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Recognizing his power, authority, and majesty as God. And believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That's our step of faith. You don't take that step of faith, you don't get the benefit of salvation. If, and it's a choice. You choose to. You share the gospel with somebody, you bring them to a point of decision. They have to make a choice. Well, I'm just not sure. I just won't choose. You made a choice not to choose. It's the same as choosing not to look. So we, we share the gospel with somebody, and we bring them to a place where now they have to make a decision. It's up to them. They can choose to look upon the cross in Jesus or to turn away and die from the serpent's bite. And that bite came in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve left that garden snake bit. And the venom of that snake was in their blood and they passed it on to all of us. And there's only one way to be cured of it and healed of it, the cross. But when we do that, and we accept Jesus, and we confess him as Lord, then we become righteous with his righteousness. We become freed of the guilt of sin and made acceptable to God. Our step of faith is to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. I went long enough. I could go further, but I think I gave you more than you could chew already. But that's why we record these things and put them on Facebook and YouTube and Spotify and wherever else Brother Darrell finds to put them. Because you can't get it all in one sitting. Amen. I'm telling you, when I hear a good word from somebody, I'll listen to it over and over and over. And it seems like every time I hear it, I hear something new. I didn't know he said that, but he did. He said it the first time. Because I'm listening to, listening to the same recording, but it's like, I never heard that. He must not have said it the first time. <laughs> it's a recording. Yeah, he said it, dummy. Listen to it again. And then the third time you hear something else. You can't get it all in one sitting. So listen to it again. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you, the last couple of messages, I think I'm going to listen to them. I might even take some notes. It was so good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God was trying to reveal himself to Israel all through the Old Testament. 
So that when he did show up on the scene, they'd recognize him. They'd say, hey, he's the one we've been studying for all these years. He's the one that we've been looking for. But no, they let religion get in there and it blinded them. Jesus called them blind guides. You, you know, you're, you're trying to guide Israel into the promised land and you're blind yourself. And if the blind is leading the blind, you're both going to wind up in the ditch. And that's exactly where Israel was in the ditch. And to this day, uh, much of Israel, not all, there's a lot of Messianic Jews, they still, they're still practicing Judaism, but they're also Christians. They're born again and saved, they recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but they still practice some of the Old Testament uh, things. And uh, just like right now, they're trying to rebuild the temple over there in, in uh, Israel. And when they do, they're going to start sacrificing again, just like the Old Testament. They're going to have the Day of Atonement, the two goats, the scapegoat, and the sacrifice. They're going to have uh, uh, wave offerings and weed offerings and uh, sin offerings and this offering and that offering. And the blood is going to flow again through that temple. Because they, they don't believe the Messiah came yet. They're still looking for him. In the, in the Jewish synagogue, the, uh, their temple... They still had that empty seat that Jesus sat in when he gave that, came out of the wilderness, gave that message, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed. He identified himself as the Messiah, sat in that seat. They pulled him out of that seat and wanted to throw him off a cliff. They missed it. They missed it. But we didn't miss it. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. God, you show yourself to us seven ways to Sunday. There is no way that we can doubt your existence. There is no way that we can doubt your majesty and your miraculous power, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, even more. And, and a lot of times we say, well, if I would have seen the things that they seen, I'm going to tell you something, the things that you've already seen and the things you're about to see, even the prophets of old, God's mighty men of old, Look forward to seeing the things that you're seeing. They're jealous of the things that you're seeing and the things you're going to see. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, we're in for a time. God's getting ready to shake this earth. And I'm, I, you're either in it or you're out of it. And I say we should be in it. Amen. So we thank you and praise you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for showing us over and over and over that you are God and you are real. Hallelujah. We appreciate you so much, Lord. We love you so much. And we ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.